ignition sequence start. Three, two, one. Lock and load. It's time for the gun rack with your hosts, Joey and Drew. Hello and welcome to the gun rack, Sonoran Desert Institute School of Firearms Technology's official podcast. I'm Drew Poplin. And we had a really cool episode in store for you guys today. Bit of a rare occurrence. We are joined by not one, but two guests, which is pretty rare for us to do. Not only that, you know, normally the podcast consists of a bunch of bearded white guys. Today, we got two mustaches in, in the building. So that's excellent news. We always like seeing a little bit of that little woolly man mustache coming along. So always enjoy seeing that. But before we get into that conversation... Let's first talk a little bit about SDI. SDI is an online school that helps students learn the skills and techniques they'll need to be successful in the firearms and unmanned technology industries. SDI is accredited by the Distance Education Accrediting Commission, otherwise known as the DEAC. And currently, we offer two, you heard me right, two programs in firearms technology. We have the Associate of Science in Firearms Technology, so you know, actual degree program. That's pretty cool. And then we also had the certificate program, the Certificate in Firearms Technology Gunsmithing. If you'd like to find out more about SDI, about our programs, encourage you guys head to our website at www.sdi.edu for more information. Now, our first guest, uh, we've mentioned him on the podcast a few times, mentioned him a couple weeks ago. He even had appearance in our short-lived YouTube series, SDI Marketing Lab. If you ever saw that, there's a decent chance he didn't. So you might know him by the moniker of Mongoose, which is a moniker. It's a nickname that I'm not entirely sure how we came across. I think it was just a moment of inspiration. I took a look at him and you know said he's Mongoose. He is a policeman and a member of his regional bomb squad. And he also happens to be married to my sister. Join me in welcoming fellow member of the Gunrack Mafia, Thomas. Thomas, how are you doing, man? Doing well. Thank you for having me on. Oh, it's our pleasure. Uh, anytime you can get the mongoose on the pod, we got we to gotta take advantage of that. And our second guest spent eight years as a military police officer in the Army Reserve in Colorado National Guard. And over 10 years as a Grand Junction, Colorado PD officer, serving as a street cop and on the SWAT team. All that really just scratches the surface of his qualifications and accomplishments. But now he is the owner, founder, and lead instructor of Defenders USA, Mr. Adam Winch. Adam, welcome to the gun rack, sir. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We're very happy that you could come on to the podcast. Um, before we dig into you know, talking with Adam and Thomas, a bunch of different stuff. I think it's important for us to, um, you know, if we're kind of mapping out y'all stories, we need to figure out how you got to where you are now. So Adam, sir, I'll start with you. Would you mind just telling us, you know, whereabouts you kind of like grew up and how you first got into firearms? So first of all, I think you're crazy to have two cop types on here at the same time. This might be a recipe for disaster. Yeah. <laughs> Don't like those odds, but you know, I've heard worse. Especially a cop that's grown up firefighter mustache. I mean, come on now. <laughs> okay, so so uh, my background, 
Agrippa is a missionary kid in West Africa. So for Thomas, for you, I actually had two different mongooses, but my friends would shoot them out of the trees <laughs> or off the walls and they'd end up in somebody's pot and they would eat the thing. And I love those mongooses, right? They got some funny habits. They're incredible, incredible pets, incredible uh, uh, little little creatures. So grew up in West Africa, came back to the States, immediately ran off to a military college, think like VMI, West Point, Citadel, things like that. Later joined the U.S. Army Reserves in Colorado and uh, became an MP. And uh, really, I just wanted to be a cop. And I figured starting out as a, as a military police officer in the civilian side would let me get to the, or the military side would let me get to the civilian side as a cop as quickly as possible. I didn't realize that was a really bad plan at the time. I didn't know, right? So I went as MP, got tired of that pretty quick. And then I moved into, if you know the acronyms like uh, ERT, QRF, SRT, PSD. So think like protecting personnel, a military SWAT team. And I was lucky enough that my reserve unit was all full of cops, uh, cops and SWAT cops from the Denver metro area. So I got to learn it, not the army way. I got to learn it the right way. And that was, that was a good thing. Right. Um, later, while later I went to the police Academy in the Denver area. And while we were in the Academy, literally working out September 11th happened. And we watched in the gymnasium there when the, the towers came down oh, wow. when, when tower number two got hit as we watched the plane come in i kind of turned to my buddies because there's three of us reservists in there and a guy who just got out of the air force and uh as a pj and he was in the, the academy and as soon as we saw that tower come in i turned to my buddies and i'm like we're at war we're going to war and next thing you know yep the air force guy got recalled pulled out of the class literally that day and then um it took us about eight months to get deployed but by then i'd become a cop in colorado and then about eight months into my job as a cop, I we got deployed and so spent, I don't know, 12 or 13 months boots on ground between Kuwait, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, doing different things. And then later came back to Colorado after that and uh, kept on being a cop and moved into SWAT and street crimes and training and yada, yada. Defenders, the company, you can see it back there, Defenders USA, started because some bad things happened to people I knew. They wanted some training. And uh, I just kind of pulled out of my hip pocket and started doing some training. You know, the idea was I thought people needed the training that like Thomas has here, right? That my buddies and I had, because if we get more people trained, there's going to be less victims of crime. And so I kept saying that and I kept griping that all the dumb concealed carry classes out there don't teach anybody anything. And finally, somebody in the police department challenged me, hey, if you're going to gripe about it, why don't you do something about it? So I started a company on the side. And uh, eventually grew to where I was able to take it full time. And as a kid in Africa, I always wanted to be a cop, a soldier, and own a business in America. Well, I'd done the first two. So I ultimately was able to take this full time. And, you know, if it ever decides to not go well, maybe I'll go back to something else. But in the meantime, it's been going strong. I've been doing it full time for 10 years and it's growing. And I love training people to, I don't know, be better defenders of themselves. For sure. For sure. That's awesome, man. Going back a little bit so you were mk yeah <laughs> yeah missionary kid uh oh you know the acronym oh yeah where, where in west africa uh Kudiwa, or if you say it in english on an english map the ivory coast oh, um, okay yeah so right next to ghana so mm -hmm. i take it you know something about this you yep. okay i was a uh, I was a mk in south africa oh awesome okay yeah, yeah. how was how was that Oh, it was wonderful. It So it was a bit weird because I guess we kind of got started in that whole realm a little late. I remember I was 10 
and my parents told me that that we were gonna you know become missionaries right uh so you know i was already like pre-teen teenage you know it took us a couple of years to raise support to yeah of course be able to get down there so i think we didn't move until i was almost 16 so only ended up spending about three years in south africa but um it was wonderful incredible isn't it incredible i've yeah. never been to south africa but we had a different route right i was three or four when my mom and dad got called for ministry and by the time I was six, we were already in Africa, right? They were able to raise support on deputation far faster than most it seemed. And it only took about a year and a half between that and language school. And next thing you know, we were in Africa. And boy, I grew up that way. So I don't know about you, but here in the States, when people talk about TV shows back in the, the days when I was young or songs or what, I, I have no clue what they're talking about because I didn't grow up the way yeah. the standard American did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Um... For me, I know that they would eventually like catch up with like some of the American media and stuff. But you know, most movies that would come out would be like three months delayed from when they initially. <laughs> you yeah. you were lucky. It would yeah. take us three years to see stuff. But South Africa is way more advanced than where I was. So that's true. You're, you're lucky, brother. You're lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in my ignorance, I remember asking my parents because we knew another missionary family. Right. Um, you know, that our church supported that was in South Africa. So when they first told us, I remember as a kid being like, oh, are we going to the same village as the Cranes? Not knowing that like, oh, honestly, compared to where I grew up here in America, it was, it was a lot nicer. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, oh, wow. Um, forgive my ignorance of about the culture and stuff at the Ivory Coast. Most of my knowledge of the Ivory Coast comes from soccer yeah uh, yep. it's a, yep. yeah but yeah i'll be like oh drogba yeah that's where drogba's from yep 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 les elephants right the elephants is yes. the national team there mm -hmm. but yeah so um so it's french speaking right it was colonized by the french so they speak parisian french so i grew up speaking french because we started doing picking that up when we were six or so mm -hmm. um and you know came back right before i turned 18 but uh um, there's 64 different, uh, different, uh, ethnicities, or you could think villages or, or sex, different types of tribes there. So we got to know a little bit of like Jula, uh, Dwala, Abe, uh, a couple different, a couple different languages. I got little smatterings where you could slightly communicate, but I couldn't figure out most of them. Um, so, so we spoke French all the time. In fact, the only time we saw English or spoke English was when we were at home. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I don't know some of the best people in the world, one of those beautiful places in the world that later after we left turned into a massive civil war, probably no different than what South Africa did to where, you know, it, it, it became as the Islamists invaded from the North, it, it's now a divided state between an Islamist state and a non-Islamist state. And it's, it's kind of always on the edge of turning into another, another very, very brutal civil war that nobody here in America really hears about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was not aware of that. Honestly, you know, Africa as a continent, unfortunately, goes through a lot of those cycles of, you know, yeah. you know, civil war, maybe a period of peace, and then it's right back to yeah. you know, conflict. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. When we were there, they had basically a, a benevolent dictator that ran the place, and uh, you know, and he he was he was extremely corrupt, but very good for the country, right? To where. Mm -hmm. Ivory Coast at the point in time was the fourth most prosperous, economically stable nation in Africa. And uh, once he died, because he was like dictator benevolent for, for life, once he died, immediately it 
started assembling, you know, into just complete outright civil war to where I have a lot of friends, they got their hands chopped off, they're killed, they're missing, they're, you know, raped, they're whatever, and subjugated into, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's hard to hear the stories of that, but at the same time, some of it's still prospering, and it kind of depends on what sections you're in, whether it's the Islamic sides or not, and uh, it just, mm -hmm. it's Africa, it's just the way it is. Have you been able to go back since you initially went? No, I would love to. I would love to. My late, my parents later after Paris Troika happened, meaning the wall came down in you know Eastern Germany, all they they got called into uh, into say Moldova, Russia, and other places. Uh, they did that for quite a while. Then they went back to Africa, going to Benin, and then they finally finished their last like seven or eight years in Cameroon. So though I got to go to Russia and Moldova visiting them, by that time. By the time they went back to Africa, I didn't get to go. And uh, as much as I'd love to go and take my hot little wife to see that, uh, we just have never had the chance to go. And I'm not sure I really want to take my little family to Africa right now in those places I grew up because it may not be the best place for us. Mm. Mm. Well, listen, if you ever uh, end up taking your family over there, you know, if we're in Africa at the same time, we got to try linking up. I know it's a huge oh, continent, but, you know. Oh, let's hook up. Let's hook up. So, um, so, uh, but, but last question, I don't mean to ignore you, Thomas, but by the way, what, what denomination were you guys drew? Protestant. A lot of the churches that are already in South Africa right. are some sort of Protestant because of the Dutch influence. Uh, okay. Dutch yeah. Dutch influence. Yeah. Uh, well, well, we've got a common background. Now all we got to do is work on Thomas because it looks like he needs <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> my my, uh, my uncle was a missionary in Nigeria for 25 years. Yeah. They they lived in Nigeria for more than more. They lived there more than they lived in the U.S. Right. And then my brother was a missionary in South Africa as well. So. Wow. Yeah. Small go. world. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Incredible. All right. If I'm not mistaken, my geography, Nigeria is closer to the uh, ivory coast or cote d'ivoire mm -hmm. than south africa is <laughs> yeah 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 nigeria is well, i think two countries over right i got yeah. friends there and all and i've always wanted to go but never got to um but uh probably one of the better <laughs> better countries in africa from a safety standpoint despite some of the wars going on in the north because the same thing is happening in nigeria that happened in the ivory coast yeah yeah there's a very yeah islamic versus non-islamic um yeah. war going on but yeah, yeah. that seems to be the, the same wars that have been going on since the last 2000 plus years. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but that might actually serve as a good transition. You know, see Thomas a little bit about Thomas is he's, you know, he's something worse than an MK. He's a military brat. Mm. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you um, poor guy, you're getting picked on here. Yeah. No. Yeah. Thankfully. Uh, uh, yeah. Thankfully we didn't move around a whole lot, but um my dad's last station was uh in virginia and that's where my brother my brother and i basically were grew up there but the rest of my siblings were born like rhode island belgium you know south carolina california all i've got five siblings so um yeah we we my family moved around a lot but we didn't my my little brother and i so by the time we got there my dad was on shore duty so he we basically stayed put there. So, wow, nice. So, I take it you were in Virginia Beach. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. uh, a Navy brat, and uh, for the first nineteen years of my life, I grew up around. You know, you walk into a store, or or a restaurant, or whatever, 
and you're just seeing people in uniform all over the place, yeah. Uh, yeah. whether whether it's police or military. You saw a lot more military than you did uh, any other unit, any, any other type of uniform. Um, so it, it wasn't uncommon. And uh, always seeing planes or helicopters fly over. Um, Those that, that was always fun. And uh, thought thought I was going to go into the Navy just like my dad. And uh, I I stepped foot on onto a ship, and I was like, oh, this is cool. And they're like, yeah, this is where you'd spend your first uh, two years in the Navy down here in the engine compartment, learning how the the ship works. <laughs> and I was like, there's no windows. Yeah. There's you know, I, yeah. I'm not good with engines. Like that doesn't, I want to hunt pirates. Like that sounds cool. Uh, like, you know, on captain Phillips and things like that. And I was like, oh, I guess that's not, not going to be for me. I, I can't be on a, on a small boat for uh, <coughs> nine, nine to 12 months away from a spouse. So that didn't work out, but um, yeah. So, so how did you end up? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, so, um, yeah, you wanted to be in the Navy sort of growing up or you're thinking yeah. about like, you know, some sort of branch of the military. And then um, you said why, you know, your opinion shifted. Um, how did that end up shifting to become, OK, I'm going to go into law enforcement? Um, Well, yeah, so. I was looking for something else like for college, uh, the different majors that there were, I was like, none of them look interesting. I don't want to do accounting. I don't want to do business or arts and crafts or whatever these majors are. And I thought criminal justice, that looks, that looks interesting. Um, <laughs> what I didn't realize was how worthless a criminal justice degree is. Exactly. <laughs> um, you, you can be one of two things. You can be a cop or a lawyer with that. Uh, well, you still have to go to law school, but, um, you know, there's very few avenues that, that you can go. Uh, so my first professor was a, as a police, was a Virginia state police officer. And he was great. Told us all sorts of stories. He retired as a, as a, um, like a Lieutenant or captain or something. And so he, he told us all these stories and that kind of piqued my interest. And, um, I think it was my senior year. I actually did my first ride along and it was in a small town in Ohio, like, 4,000 people maybe or something. It was boring, but I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Like we went on one call in a 10 hour shift or something, but I still thought it was the coolest thing ever. I think we pulled over one car, um, but I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so I think that's, that's what my, my shift was. I was like, okay, well I can't do military, but I can serve another way. Um, and I don't want to be a firefighter. I don't want to be a paramedic. I want to be a police officer so there's nobody in my family that's ever been a police officer so I, you know military there's people in my family have been military but um police was a new a new avenue so are you are you working patrol or are you on a specialized unit what do you do yes <laughs> uh so so i'm on patrol right now that's the only thing that has ever really been interesting to me um yeah. the uh when i was in college i was like yeah i want to be a, a homicide detective i want to you know, be on like the, the SWAT team. I want to do all that. And then I got to working that and I was like, Oh, you mean these guys get called out of bed at, on Christmas day? Constantly. Uh, like it, it doesn't matter. Christmas day. There's always a homicide in any city around the country. Um, or, Hey, you worked five days and then your weekend is spent on a, on a scene, a homicide scene like that sounds awful. So I scrapped that idea. Um, I got to 
I got to train with some of the canine guys and I said, this is sweet. I want to do canine. Um, I had a, I had a jump and run. Uh, there was a traffic stop. This guy had like a bunch of boxes of, of weed in the back seat um, and a gun and everything. And he, he jumped and ran. I, I lost the foot pursuit. Not even going to lie. Um, I slipped on some leaves. <laughs> I fell. It was bad. Um, so we did it. We did a canine track and I was left in the dust and I said, I don't think I could be a canine officer. So, um, you know, I, I didn't even worry about applying. Yeah. Um, and then yeah. I saw we were, there was a, uh, it was a parade or something and I was working a traffic post and it was hot. And I was like, who are those cool guys riding around in the Polaris's? wearing army green bbus like they look like cool dudes i want to do that what is that and turns out that's the bomb squad um and so mm-hmm. i applied 2020 covid just started and they had an application process come out went through the went through the application the tryout and my wife was like are you sure and i was like yeah let's do it and i, I was like let's just try it and um so i got you know i got selected and uh been doing that since 2020 so about three years um and that's been that's been good so that's 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 like an auxiliary position so i i do regular patrol 90 percent of the time and then two days a month i train with bomb squad um if there's a if there's any type of call out um that we need we're needed for then i'll i'll respond to that as well so um it's kind of like a dual role um but there, I'm only one of, what is it? It's one of six, I think, in the department um, that's on the bomb squad. There's, it's not very big. Uh, not, not a lot of people are crazy enough to do that job. Yeah. Um, everybody wants the cool SWAT stuff, you know, the, the cool toys and uh, whatnot. But um, so, yeah, so I, that's what I'm doing right now. Um, uh, not really uh, have any ambition to do anything else, honestly. Well, you um, clearly got better math skills than many of us because you got to have math skills to do that. And two, yeah, I mean, it, you got to you got to have stones to sit there and go play with things that go bang in big ways, right? I couldn't yeah. do that. And you mentioned yeah. you mentioned you mentioned SWAT, right? There's no glory in SWAT, right? I thought there was. I thought it's going to be so cool in all Hollywood. And man, you're getting called out all the time. Doesn't matter what you've done. You know, I got off a 27 hour shift one time, and boom, get called right back out. And, Man, they, after a while, you just realize you just embrace the suck and you just go yep. to work. It's not, it's not Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I've got, um, I've got friends who are on SWAT, and I was like, yeah, you guys are, you know, you guys are cool, and I, I'm glad to do what you do because I don't think I could be the one going through the door, like at a with an unknown subject with a gun pointed at me. I, I just couldn't do that. It's um, so scary. Yeah, I mean, I, you do you, but I, I'm, I'm gonna be in the bomb truck operating the robot from a safe distance. Like that's my job. Like that's, I'll be okay. Um, I so. don't know. It takes some brass ones to walk up on something that goes bang in a real big way. Yeah. Well, there, there's a mutual respect between the SWAT and bomb squad. And we actually train together uh, twice a year and we do a lot. We have a lot of call outs together and stuff like that. So we help build their explosives. They, um, they teach us some, you know, some cool stuff too. And, let us play with their toys so uh yeah it's it's good it, a lot of other agencies can't say that they have a mutual uh respect between swat and their bomb squad um but yeah it's it's good i mean you, it's a small you know the swat team and the bomb squad are small enough that you you can build a camaraderie like on your training days or whatever and um 
but there's other agencies that don't, they don't work well together at all. And I, I was like, I don't know how you don't work well together. That's pretty, pretty important and necessary on a, on a call where you can't have your enemy being working with you when you're trying to, right. to take, to, you know, take this sub- suspect in custody or whatever, or wh- whatever you guys are doing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's fun though. We, you know, we work hard, but we play hard as well. So. Drew, I got to tell you, I appreciate you inviting me on because I think we got the trifecta of crazy going on here. So, <laughs> listen, I, I I can book some guests. I may not, you know, be knowledgeable about much anything else, but I can get people together. Yeah, they. My my wife, uh, she's actually more comfortable with me being on Bomb Squad than me being a police officer to, altogether. Um, the because the thing is, I'm sure Adam, you you've had it where. Uh, when you were a cop where you get dispatched and when what's the subject or what's the topic or the call uh basically the uh, headline right you know unknown trouble right what is that supposed to mean you know and that's what my wife she's like that just doesn't like that could be anything <laughs> yep that it's all open to interpretation you have to figure it out when you get there and uh as far as you know bomb squad goes you're like oh well there's a there's a package let's go x-ray it or whatever and most nine ninety times out of a hundred, we can figure out what's inside and what's what makes the thing work. But when you're when you're driving to a call and it's unknown trouble, and you're like, "Well, I've got a thousand scenarios running through my head, and I've got to figure out which one's going to play out." And then you get there, and it was the thousand and first scenario. It wasn't any of those thousand scenarios. Um, it's kind of you know, I, I feel like that's sometimes harder. <laughs> and you make but, sure you don't text the wife, "Hey." If there's only little pieces left, please do this with my belongings. Make sure you don't do that. <laughs> well, that's that's what the bomb suit is for, so you can have a yeah open casket. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Well, not, not to I'm, be morbid or anything. <laughs> I, I'm kind of lucky. My my hot little wife, right? She's a cop too, so we can talk to each other on the same plane, and she doesn't get too worried about stuff. And I don't get well. I do get worried about the girl, right? She does some dangerous <laughs> stuff, but uh, it's it's cool to have that to where we both kind of understand each other. Yeah. Well, Th- Thomas, your wife was elementary education, so you know, you know, it's That's debatable which dangerous. ones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of want to, uh, I guess, expand on this conversation. You know, about going into these high pressure, you know, high stakes situations. Um, and this is a question for both of you guys. In those moments, do you feel like your mind is thinking like? incredibly quickly and you're going off of that or do you feel like it's based mainly off of instinct from your training Hmm. that's a case-to-case basis Mm -hmm. so like a um emergency traffic uh our pileup person trapped things like that my job is to get there as fast as i can but the fire department's going to be able to help them a lot better than i will be um you know, really my whole job is going to be traffic control or, or, um, you know, writing the report. But so, so when it comes to those, like that will be dispatched the same intensity as a subject with a gun or a, a shooting or something like that. And some of these calls, like we've done, we've done so many times where it's like, Oh, oh it's a shooting at this location. The suspect, it's a drive-by or whatever. Okay. We got, we got to go there, secure the scene and, and render aid. Um, I think it really like it's a case to case basis. Um, uh, but yeah, in those moments, you're kind of like, well, for, for me at least, 
I'm like, oh, like this is this is real. This is my job. And like, I can't call the police because I'm the one responding. So I can't call somebody else to do it. Like that's, that's my job. Um, and so, yeah, there's, uh, I think that a lot of times I'm scared too, honestly, uh, where I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I going towards this danger and not away from the danger? Um, but I think that's where, you know, I've got, I know there's two or three cop cars behind me and that's when I feel a little more courage. I'm like, okay, I've got two or three other officers with me. We're, we're going to be okay. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. I think it really is a base or a case to case basis. Um, when it comes to how much information, you know, and you know, who gets there first, that sort of thing. But most of the time it's, you know, it's either I'm, I'm annoyed driving there cause I'm having to do my job, um, uh, or, or I'm, you know, having a little bit of, uh, Oh, what am I going to do? You know, even though I've done this a thousand times, what am I going to do? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure Adam will say probably the so, opposite. <laughs> so, so, you know, there was a lot of instinct involved, right? Um, I think there's a lot of pre thought through decisions got to be made ahead of time, right? That, Somebody's got to go, and yep. uh, why not me than somebody else, right? At the same time, there's sometimes, sometimes there's room for true fear, right? There's been times I've gone through that door, or I'm hunting that person with a gun down by the river or in the woods or in our neighborhood with a gun who's going to kill us, right? There, there's some real fear. Other times, it compartmentalizes away because you're so focused on your task and making sure you do the right things so your buddies right? The guys and girls that are with you, they don't take a round in the face. Um, you know, so so I, I think I, I agree with Thomas that it goes back and forth. What I found is it became more instinctual. The more I had been a veteran as a cop and the more hard things I've faced um, and the more I'd done it, the more it became internalized. And you just did it by, I wouldn't say by instinct so much, but by instinctual training, right? Or trained instinct and it began to just flow and you would just do things and you so compartmentalize away hey i might take a round today i might not be going home right or i got to do this because my buddy might take around whatever it may be right or if we don't catch these people or this person then some other grandma is going to get raped or get shot or stabbed right we've got to do it somebody's got to go and here more here my lord send me right why not me than somebody else so it, it, it kind of went back and forth for me to where the more I felt trained, the more I'd made decisions that I will be the one to go do this. Um, I will be the one to take the round if I have to. I will be the one to send the rounds if I have to. Um, these people need captured. I've been anointed. I mean, that's kind of how I looked at it. I was called to that type of work. So because I was called that type of work, then therefore I will do the very best I can to be prepared for that moment and squash the monster inside. Cause I'll tell you, the cougar rises, you start going through the door, you start going towards it. You know, there's bad things. There's five dudes sitting in that car and you know, they just want to kill a cop that day. And you're the only one there. Right. I mean, he, the, the cougar rises and, and you got to be smart about your tactics, but you also got to be hard of heart or at least strong of heart. And the more you have trained yourself and thought this through, the more you do smarter things in there and actually you work less and you spend more less time in your own head going, trying to think it through because you just do it by instinct. So I hate to give you a vague answer. Um, I am struggling with it. I think the same way Thomas was too here, how to say that, but I think 
I think at the very beginning, it was just instinct based on some training, but a lot of thought towards the end, because you internalized so much and you became very good at what you did, right? That you just put thought away and you let the training flow through almost on an instinctual level. And uh, it was it was beautiful when you could tell that you did everything right. Um, you didn't have to spend a lot of thought or energy in it. You just did the job. And uh, somehow everybody came out okay. Nobody had to die that day. And uh, that was a good feeling, right? I, I don't know about you, Thomas, but, you know, my first couple – 10, 15 fights I got onto on the street or maybe first 50 fights I got on the street were very muscular, very dynamic, very this or that. But the more I trained and the more I did things, whether it was hand-to-hand or guns or whatever, but the more you got into it, the more you just kind of flowed through it and there was a lot less energy involved, a lot less muscle involved, a lot lot more technique-based, a lot more feeling-based, you know, sensory perception, visual perception, and it became easy and it less wore out the mind and the body too. And it became the same thing with all the gun stuff and the dangerous things. The more you were trained, the more you prepared, the more decisions you made, um, the more it just flowed and it just became an easy day-to-day thing and you compartmentalize the terror that sometimes you feel. And then later, <laughs> later, you stand there in the shower 20 hours later, you know, you're washing all the grime and the nastiness off and you're thinking, I shouldn't be here today. I should have died today. And you know what? By God's grace, we did. Um, well said. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, that brings me to you know the next question I was going to ask. Anyway, um, we know that going through something like that can have um, mental and emotional toll. For both of you guys, how do you find that? How do you end up centering yourself after something like that and like still being like, well, gotta go back to work the next day, you know? Or is it a long term thing where you're, you know, long term, you work through it and you kind of just do whatever you can following that? Mm. Oh, that's good. That's a good question. That's deep. So let me jump in here. Um, If you see in the background back here, there's a big stone up there. Says Officer Bill Foy, right? He was uh, he was my partner, my best friend, um, my my brother, right? Um, And he didn't compartmentalize and deal with this well. And uh, one day, 16 minutes after I got the last last text, as I'm realizing what's going on, I'm trying to get to him. He went ahead and just he. As they say in the cop world, sucks hard at his own gun, right? Um, and I, I found his body. I lived near the desert. I found his body in his de- in the desert, right where he said I would find him. You know, I, I've seen a lot of cops who've done that. You know, we have it in the, sol- in the in the in the soldier world too, especially those who've really seen things. And and if it's not that, I've seen the cop, and and I could I could take this out to the civilian who's been through traumatic events, right? They've been the victim of crimes. If they don't deal with it well later, oftentimes they'll drown their sorrows in a bottle or in beating the husband or the wife one time too many, right? Um, or, or in addictions of too many video games or secluding themselves away or spending too much in credit and, and whatever, right? To deal with the noise that's going on within the heart and the head. So Drew, you touch on something that's a real passion for me because, you know, I, I've seen and done some some rough things. I'm sure Thomas has been through 
just as much, if not more. And, and, and if you don't center that, right, we destroy our marriages, we destroy our families, we destroy ourselves, and we change and become the people we're not. Thomas is probably, I'm presuming Thomas here, is probably a lot like me. I used to be this nice little missionary kid from West Africa, innocent and good and kind and everything else. And within about a year and a half to two years of cop work, because I saw so much hate and violence and gore and this and that, I became a completely different person, completely different person. And, and I would tell you, because it's been dealt with over time, a better person, but there's a just drastic change from the human I was raised to be. And so I would tell you that from my perspective, whether you're an EMT, paramedic, firefighter, police officer, soldier who's seen a lot of war, special operations type, if you deal, you know, ER nurse, ER doc, ER tech, if you deal in the bloods and the guts and the gore and the hate of humanity on a day in, day out basis, right, the dispatcher, whatever it is, if you're that type of person that by profession you deal with the, the blood and hate and the gore of humanity, you need to get your soul checked now and then, right? It's not a bad idea. And I would tell you it's a very manly thing. <laughs> Go get the counseling you deserve to get. You need need to get. And oftentimes, if you're denying that type of thing, it doesn't have to be formal counseling, but you need to work on yourself. Take the vacations that you're there. Don't be the guy or girl that did what I did, who banked up all his vacation hours and just went to work all the time because it was so cool. And I just want to kick through the next door, be in the next fight, be in the next gunfight, something like that, right? Don't be that guy. Be that guy and that girl who's going to take the time away, go recenter yourself, be around people who are not cops. If you're a firefighter, be around people who are not firefighters, right? If you're a dispatcher, be around people who are not dispatchers. Go see what humanity really is like on the outside in the civilian world and remind yourself how good, how much good there is in the world. Because I know for me as a cop on my weekends, I would cloister myself away at my home. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to see people. And that was an unhealthy thing to do. And so therefore, go see the world. It's not always the dirt bags you arrest all the time. Go see the, the world. Really only about eight, 10% of our population is truly evil and bad. And there's a massive 80, 90% of our population that are wonderful, value-adding, heartfelt people. And we as cops need to go out and see those people. Also, find things that, you know, that, that recenter your soul. Whatever it is, go to counseling. I don't know, go to church. Do whatever it is you do. Read your Bible. Um, you know, play basketball or some dumb thing, right? Do something. Right. Work out. Do something to keep your mind and heart centered and 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 know there's so much good out there, despite what we may see as first responders. And that can help. It's the ones who bury themselves away who end up like my buddy Bill. And that's the last thing that's needed. Right. And and, and it's such a horrific thing, not only for those who hurt themselves, but also more so and worse so than for those who are impacted by it that love them the most. Right. So. You've got to center the soul, find the way to do that. And if it needs means going to professional counseling, go to professional counseling, go find the psychologists and the people that do that, who deal with violence. Well, and it's not your preacher. It's not your pastor. It's not your priest. It's not, um, you know, uh, those people are really good with, you know, when your mom gets tattooed by a bus and dies, uh, they're good with that. Right. Or if your leg gets hacked off in some tractor accident, they're good with that. Or you find out you have cancer, your mom and dad has cancer. They're good with that. Your kid dies. They're good with that type of stuff. But when you are the giver of violence and you are the one who's always in the violence all the time, they don't know how to deal with that. And I can tell you from experience, because I went to Bible school after I came back from, you know, left the military stuff, thinking I was going to be called to preach. And I found out very quickly that in the 
theologian world, they don't deal with how to counsel people who've been the givers of violence, the receivers of violence. The receivers are bad, but not the givers. So they don't know how to deal with it. So go find the professional counselors out there, get some help, um, or at least find ways to center your life and see the good that's out there versus the evil we saw day in, day out. Adam, thank you very, very much. Um, first of all, I'm incredibly sorry um, about your partner and friend. Uh, you said his name was Bill. Uh, I'm incredibly sorry about that. Um, but thank you so much because I, I feel like your answer was um, quite poignant. Uh, so I appreciate you speaking on that. Um Thomas, any thoughts? You know. Yeah, yeah, that's I mean, that's what I would concur, you know, find a hobby. Uh that outlet is something that you can refocus yourself like, hey, I do enjoy doing this and everything's not so bad. Um, you know, you, you gotta you gotta hang this hang this up at the end of the day, and that includes um you know, the, the trauma and stuff that you've seen. Um, that's, you know, one thing I've had to work on this past uh, two, three years is, uh, and, and something my wife told me, she was like, Hey, I'm your partner. I'm your, I'm your helper. If something's really bugging you, you need to let me know because I'm not going to be able to read your mind. And that's been really helpful. Just be like, Hey, like I saw this today, or I dealt with this today. I'm struggling with this. And she, you know, that's when she's like, all right, I can help you. Or, I'll refer you to someone uh, to help you. Um, but, you know, one of the biggest things is you, you got to hang this, you got to hang this uniform up at the end of the day and just let go. Um, you can't be walking around the house. I mean, I, you can, if you want, and if you are this person that does that good for you, but you know, I I've seen the cops where all every day, their day off, they're wearing a thin blue line shirt and they're wearing five eleven cargo pants. And, you know, they're just always, in the cop mindset and i'm like you, you gotta yep. you gotta turn that off because it's going to destroy you it's going to eat you in for eat you from the inside out um you know you, you've got to have a person or what is it i um you got to have a personality that's not a police officer on your days off um you know yes when you go to work you got that uniform on you got to get the right mindset and that's i'm going to work you know on your days off you got to decompress you got to do a hobby and have an outlet something that's not police related um hang out with like you like adam said uh hang out with people that aren't cops firefighters paramedics dispatchers whatever your job is um because you know because that's you you'll have better conversation that's not sucking you in back into the job of what you just experienced and things like that um so yeah i i concur with with adams well, and thank thank you thomas um appreciate that as well so can i add this can i add this to it yeah absolutely <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with gallows humor right right no. there's nothing wrong with it <laughs> yeah. at the same time for us for, for certain types keep it amongst yourselves right um i didn't quite get that at first and you develop gallows humor pretty quickly <laughs> and 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 Next thing you know, I'm saying things to Joe Jane civilian, right? And the shock and the horror, and suddenly they don't want anything to do with me or my family. And you're like, uh-oh, I got to be careful with that. So have your gallows humor. There's nothing wrong with it. Humor helps you deal with some really bad things, right? <laughs> Laughter is, is the medicine to the soul, right? But at the same time, 
Be careful who you share it with. Keep it amongst your own that do that profession. <laughs> the, the the amount of the amount of shin kicks at the dinner table I've gotten, you know, from my spouse of hey, don't don't say that or that was too far or whatever. Even and I'm just like, oh, I just just how I talk. But yeah. It, it <laughs> sounds like agree. you better you better keep that girl. She sounds smart. <laughs> She's she's pretty cool. <laughs> maybe maybe invest in a pair of shin pads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I want to shift a little bit, Adam. I want to talk to you a little bit more about Defenders USA. Okay. Um. So you started it in 2010. Yeah. Uh, I 2009, something okay. like that. I did it for three or four years part time as a cop, mm-hmm. really just for fun, and then later for pizza money, and then it. Got to where ultimately I'm like, okay, I can go either way here. And I was able to take it full time and it's been growing and growing. So, yeah. So started out, I think 2010, it didn't become a formal entity known as Defenders USA until 2013. Gotcha. Gotcha. You also, if I'm not mistaken, um, you created Crosswind Precision Marksmanship Academy and Shadow. No, no, I actually. I'd actually hired a former cop that I used to work with to help teach like long range precision stuff. Gotcha. Um, and, and then at some point he's like, dude, I'd rather just start my own school. And he's like, but will you help me? So what it was, he started Crosswind and I became his, he and I were the primary instructors. And then I started bringing in some of my own other instructors to help with that. Cause they're way better at the long range precision stuff than even I am. And I mean, they're like sniper types, right? So we did that. And at some point he got tired of it. He went on to a really high paying job that's something else. And he basically wanted to get rid of it. So I bought it out from him, I don't know, four years or so ago. So we also own Crosswind Precision Marksmanship Academy, but I'm just kind of slowly phasing that, rolling it all under defenders. Thank you for clarifying that for me. I think one of the more underrated aspects when you're creating a business is figuring out the perfect business name. So out of curiosity, how did you come across, you know, how did you end up deciding on Defenders USA and about how long did it take you? You know, the Defenders part was pretty easy. My whole calling in life, as I've seen it, as I've felt the call was to be a defender of life. Later, when I'm sitting there going, okay, what do I want to do for other people, right? I want to help them learn to defend themselves better. I, I want less victims of crimes. I want less Thomas's or less people like my wife having to go help them on their bad day, right? Help them help them be their own cop in a sense. And I just got thinking about it. I'm like, well, I always want to be a defender. You want to help grow defenders. Why not just call it defenders? And then I went, well, I like America. <laughs> I love America. Uh-huh. So let's call it Defenders USA. Now, as I'm starting to get calls from around the world, right? Sometimes people go, well, if it didn't say USA, because we're not terribly fond of Americans, right? If you're, say, from France or whatever, some of them love us, some of them hate us. Right. But that's where it came from is I just want to build defenders, people that can defend themselves better overall. And God bless America and Defenders USA. And Defenders USA, correct me if I'm wrong, that was your first time being a business owner, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So what were were some of the, I guess, like the biggest hurdles that you faced, you know, being a first time business owner? All right. So I was always just a knuckle dragon cop or soldier, right? I could sell you a bullet or a handcuff in a heartbeat. But selling a service, selling a thing goes completely against my nature. I grew up as a missionary kid. You give everything away, right? I grew up as a cop. You give everything away. You don't charge them for, you know, arresting them and taking them to jail, <laughs> right? So, you know, you don't call, ask people for money for doing your job. So that's been the hardest part is 
learning how to run a business in America. It's, it's, I, I had to tell you, I, I thought the, some of the military stuff I did was pretty tough. I thought the police world, SWAT world was pretty tough. Being a business owner in America is the toughest, hardest thing I've ever run in my life. Wow. I had no idea. My, my new heroes since I've started this company have become, along with all the law enforcement and everybody else, all the Thomases in this world, uh, my new heroes have become the American businessman or businesswoman. And really, you could translate it to any business person, right? They, they, they deal with more heartache and hardship than I, I ever thought could be. I thought it'd be simple and easy, right? We provide incredibly great services. We phenomenal training. So I figured everybody's going to beat down our door and just come to us. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. You know, and 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 all the the management of this and the books and all the emails and yada yada. I tell you what, that's tough for somebody, and it helps if you're bright. And I'm me, so it makes it hard. <laughs> yeah. So transitioning from military to law enforcement to becoming a firearms instructor and a, yeah. a business owner, would you mind explaining how you would define your approach? as a firearms instructor? Yeah, uh, good question. So I had a defense, I had a gun use as a cop, right? And after after the whole thing was over, I realized, in fact, in the moment, I recognized that all the training I'd done, right? Military, police, I'd been through all these SWAT schools, you name it, you know, and I was the gun guy, right? I was one of our better, if not one of the best shooters in our department. And a lot of law, I mean, more training hours than I can explain. And I realized my defensive gun use as a cop did not fit my training, which was odd to me, right? And uh, so I started seeking outside of the law enforcement world, the military world for training. And, uh, and from there, I was shocked. And I mean, no disrespect. I was shocked how poor of a shooter I was. And I was one of the better ones in our department. We have a good sized department. And how poor of a shot the vast majority of police officers are in America, right? Look at look at gun uses by law enforcement officers in America. They hit on average eighteen to twenty three percent of the time. Ooh. I, I'm gonna tell you right now, that's a shameful stat, but that's the that's that's the where law enforcement training is today in America. Do you know civilians when they get into defensive gun use, they hit with far more two to three times more accuracy in their gunfights than cops do. And oftentimes we're talking people that have zero training whatsoever, none, right? They just picked up a gun and went bang with a gun. So my approach became this. As I went off to training, I realized how poor and terrible, how humbled I was when I went off to training thinking, SWAT dog, I got this. And I realized quickly how I didn't know how to shoot. And I thought I did, right? Cop, everything else, SWAT guy. Um, I, I was humbled by it. And my goal became that, hey, fights are very dynamic. They're very quick. They're usually not standing there static on a line, pulling the gun very quickly and standing there shooting. It's often very dynamic, moving up and down, rolling and rolling on the ground. So my philosophy of training has come from the aspect of you've got to fight for your life. It's probably not standing there static. So let's learn how to use a gun in very realistic ways that happen the way I experienced and what I've seen of others that I know that have been in defensive gun uses, both civilian, military and law enforcement. Let's make it more like that and let's build that. Now, first, you've got to build the fundamental skills, whether it's handgun, rifle, you got to build all that. You need to get a good first draw to shot, right? Be able to manage recoil. You have to have all the fundamentals. So we do a lot of that, but then I build them up to where now we're doing extremely dynamic stuff, oftentimes at great distance or very close quarters, 
as you do it in all sorts of topsy-turvy situations because that's what I experienced and that's what I see happens in some gunfights that are out there. Therefore, if we can build those skills into people, that's what I want to do. I want to true build your defenders. I don't want to be people going to just shoot paper and shoot paper really well. I want to build a defender for life. So that means building the heart, the mind, and also going far above and beyond the static range play that I see normally is out there. Because when your day comes, we don't know what it's like. And so therefore, let's build you as best as possible. So you actually answered two of my other questions within that answer. So that's like three right there. So round of applause, sir. Um, well, I was going to say, I saw, I actually watched a video of you doing oh. a training session and um, you were actually talking about, you know, the movement and, you know, shooting from awkward or unconventional yeah. places and yeah. poses. That was something I thought was really cool because, you know, it isn't necessarily something you, I feel like you see a lot and it, you're right. It, you know, if you're in a situation like that, I feel like there's so many factors that you do need to be dynamic and adaptable. Yeah. And, and you kind of mentioned it before, or at least a little bit. I just want to clarify when you have someone that's complete newbie, obviously you want to start them with the fundamentals built up. Absolutely. Absolutely. But because it's a pretty prevalent thing in the gun community, oftentimes people think they're at a certain level when they're you know, maybe not quite there. So do you tend to start with everyone there at the beginning and then, okay, let's work up? Or do you judge it sort of person by person? Okay, you know this much. So let's well, add on to that. Or? Good question, right? It, it kind of depends, right? If you sign up for, say, you came to one of our, you know, growing and mastering handgun fundamentals, that's generally where we're going to be. But occasionally, because the really best shooters out there, they're always coming back to the fundamentals, Right. So occasionally I'll get some really high-end shooter in a fundamentals class. And if I see they're already beyond this, we'll do whatever tweaks we need to do to make it truly as tight as possible. And then with that particular person, I might go a little bit further, right, than the average class. But if they come to like a speed accuracy and movement class, which is a little bit more advanced, and let's say they're not quite as ready for that, now I got to slow them back down and bring them back down to fundamentals. Because oftentimes people come to classes thinking they're more ready for it than they realize. Yeah. And then they realize, okay, I'm not quite that ready for it, right? Or let's say you're going into one of my advanced fighting handgun classes, right? Now you pretty much got to be a ninja already before you get there, right? So, you know, if you're ready for it, great. Now, I've had people like, like, like let's say I trained a, a like a, a, a tactical team down in Colorado um and those guys all come in come in and they're already ninjas so for those guys i started at the very beginning we went right to the very top of what we do and started right there right um was training a a, a police department here this last month where i'm at in arizona right and a couple of those people came in i mean they were solid just ninjas with guns we went straight to the top with that type of stuff others came in kind of mediocre so we stayed in that area and others came in you're like okay we need to kind of go back to the very beginning of kindergarten here so we went back to that. So it's kind of individualistic. It's based on the class. But if I have a group where, like, I, I'm doing a, I'm doing a thing in Salt Lake uh, in August with Jeremy Horn, if you know who that is. Um, so that one right there, it's all kind of ninjas with guns. So we're already going to go straight to the very top with it. And if I've got to go back and fix a few things, we're going to do that um, to get the get the safety or the technique solidified. But if not, we're going straight to the the peak with that one. So. I hate to make vague, but it's somewhat dependent on what 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 the individual and the group skill is. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, 
And you mentioned that you, you guys at Defenders USA offer a bunch of courses. Oh um, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, I started the thing, but uh, there, there's a whole bunch of really smart people with this company, right? We got an, we got an instructor in Texas. We got uh, two in Montana, like five in Colorado. We got three of us here in Arizona. So there's a bunch of us. Um, and man, I'm just lucky they haven't fired me yet, even though I'm <laughs> technically in charge. Right. But they're pretty smart. So we do everything from literally teaching handgun hand to from grandma good cookies to literally special operations SWAT team type stuff to where a lot of fighting rifle type things to where we have an incredibly robust, like long range precision sniper craft type training. Um, and the people that run that are way smarter than I am. Right. So those guys run that. I'm kind of, when it comes to long range stuff, if I go to it, I'm kind of the coffee, go fetch them guy, the helper or anything else. Cause though I can do it and teach it, they're way smarter than me and better at it. And it's their interest. It's not mine. So those guys teach that, but it kind of depends on who, where you're at, where we're going and, you know, who's teaching it. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of run a circuit. Uh, I think Nebraska, I'm, I'm in Colorado this coming weekend. I'll be teaching there, um, you know, Montana, Texas, Missouri, Kansas, Arizona, Utah, kind of running around a bit. But uh, it, we have a lot of things we do. If it's guns, basically, we, go, we do it. Um, but we also do a lot of corporate training. Um, like this weekend or this week, I'll be doing some non-gun corporate training for real estate agents. Um, be teaching a bunch of teachers in Iowa here soon with another group. Um, so, you know, we, we do a lot. Mm. Mm. And, you know, because you mentioned the team, I'm going to take a, a quick detour. You have a bit of an infinity gauntlet of a team. Oh, yeah. um, how did you first, how did you form some of those connections? So in almost every case, in fact, in every case, they start as they came to a class, right? They were either very good at it already, but they just, they'd heard about us. And we've grown quite a name in the training areas that I've lived in um, and trained at that got a good reputation. And they came as students and they either were pretty high end individuals already. And then as I watched them grow or, or as I watched them and got to know them, I started becoming interested in them. I had one or two that came to me going, Hey, would like to work with you. And, but you know, the others really, for the most part, I found them in a sense, they came to training and I just realized they were the, they were the, they were the person, right. They were the guy, they were the girl. And I'm more interested in their heart than I am their skills. Right. Any monkey can learn to shoot probably not well, but they can learn to shoot. Right. But it's hard to grow the heart. And these are just incredibly wonderful people who have a high degree of skill and the passion to give to other people. And I could see that in them. And I saw their growth constantly. And I got them, you know, I, I take them as far as I can. And I always push them out to other really world-class instructors too, so they can learn from as many people as possible. And then, you know, when I found those extremely high quality people, I do everything I can to con them, trick them, whatever I can, and right. hijack them into defenders. And you know what? So far, they've been dumb enough to stick around, and um, I'm just lucky to have them. <laughs> well, I did want to give a shout out to uh, you know one of your team members individually, Russell. Yes, um, and that's because he has yes. maybe the best yes. bio I've ever seen on a website. <laughs> uh, do you mind if I read a excerpt from it? Oh boy, go for it. We keep talking about taking it down, but go for it. <laughs> no, it. I, well, first of all, I think you should keep it up. It's hilarious. Um, 
So I wrote that out of frustration like three years ago, just so you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and by the way, he's a Mensa level genius. Total Joe Jane civilian. And he's one of the best sh long range shooters and long range instructors I've ever met in my life. Like people, the gun world thinks are the greatest, of the great go see Russell. Cause he's that good. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, for our listeners and for Thomas, if you go to the Defenders USA website and to their about us section, you know, it talks a little bit about who's who, you know, what their background is. Apparently, Adam, you guys are struggling to get Russell to write his. So yeah, that dirt bag. Yeah. <laughs> so it says Russell can't seem to get around to doing his own bio despite repeated requests. So I'll help him out. And maybe the, these first couple sentences I want to be written on my tombstone one day. He's going to die from cigarettes and monsters. He needs Jesus badly. He wears way too many sweatshirts and heavy long sleeve shirts when it's blazing hot out because he is for real freak. He's the enemy of the razor because he thinks his giraffe neck might shrivel up if one touches it. And it goes on and on. Just this thorough uh, roast. And, but then it ends up, uh, I might break his legs if he doesn't do a real bio for himself soon. But until then, he is one incredible long-range instructor that most of the best precision shooters and professional sniper types need to learn from. And I genuinely respect and love this guy. Uh-oh. <laughs> So wonderful bio. When I read that, I knew I need, need to include it on the podcast. I figure <laughs> listeners would enjoy hearing that. You should get him on, right? The man's brilliant. He he says really, really big words very, very fast to where even I am sitting there going, huh? Right. And occasionally I have to write crap down and then go look it up later to see what it actually meant. He's one of those people that he knows he's very smart, but he doesn't realize how smart he is. Mm -hmm. And and so he talks a level to where people are sitting there like you know, like a puppy dog. Like, what did he just say? What did he mean? And it, your brain is always three or four or five paragraphs behind him trying to catch up and get it all. And he's brilliant. He's hilarious. Your audience, oh my goodness, they would learn so much. And if you want the tiniest nuances of gun stuff and shooting and yeah, he's the guy. He's the guy. Yeah, we definitely might need to do that. I, um, especially since we just threw him under the bus a little bit. Uh, Russell, <laughs> if you end up listening to this, we love you, man. You're welcome onto the pod. Uh, Russell, you dirtbag, write your bio. <laughs> <laughs> it's been three years already. But um, so back to Defenders USA. One of the courses that caught my eye was your Defender series. Yes, sir. Would you mind just kind of going into, you know, what's involved with that course in particular? Okay, so um, so the first part of that is really a very in-depth legal seminar. Granted, it is for the state of Colorado, um, because that's the laws I know deeply and well. But I've expanded to a couple other states to where we get into it. I don't know case law as well in other states and some of the laws as I do Colorado. But it goes very deeply into that. After that, we start just going into, into really mindset, heart set, you name it, tactics, understanding things about guns and, you know, those then we get spent a very extensive amount of time building the fundamentals or tightening the fundamentals of shooting. And I'm talking right now, we're not talking fighting with a gun. We're talking just, you know, grip stance, platform, trigger press, sight picture, dot up, optic, whatever, and really building people up to be very good, competent shooters. Then we take it back. And this is over a course of several days. Then we go back to the classroom and now we get into, okay, 
the second you go bang with a gun, what should you do? What should you expect? What's going to happen to you on a societal level, a social level, familial level, financial level, legal level, you know, spiritual level, all those types of things. How's this going to change your life? How do you mitigate that? Um, we get into what are the best firearms and types of gear and ammunition for the defense of life and why certain ones are bad and why certain ones are good. And it, it goes so in depth. We get into tactics, um, like if you're in a gunfight or a bump in the middle of the night and your home happens, what do you do? If you're with your family, what do you do? We have extremely in-depth in discussions. We go back out to the range and we keep graduating from where we were in the fundamentals course to where now we start getting a defensive use of a gun from a fighting perspective. And now there's movement involved, speed, a lot of tons of very fast recoil management, acceptable to precise accuracy. We get into defending others, right? Because so far, the vast majority of gun training out there is just you pulling guns shooting because maybe you're shooting, right? But here, how do you shield, control, and move people if you had to? It's your children. It's whatever else. What do you do if there's things in your hands, like your cell phone, your groceries, whatever, and you got to go to a gun? What do you do if you're pumping gas? How do you use it this way? What if you have multiple assailants? How do you go back and forth if you need to? We get into close quarters type stuff. What if somebody's on top of you? They're trying to take the gun away. What do you do? Your gun goes down. How do you handle this? How do you shoot non-dominant? It's just a graduated course that goes further and further and further. It's pretty extensive. And the idea is it's a series of courses over two and a half days or so or three days, depending on how much time I have with them, to where how can we hit the complete area of being a defender of life? Understand? And I don't mean to go long here, but understand, I think you have three responsibilities when it comes to being a defensive person or a gun owner. One, you must know the laws of your jurisdiction as well as the Johnny Cochran who's going to come for you. As Thomas knows, you pull a gun in defense of life, whether you use it or not, whether you shoot somebody or not, right? You're going to face legal consequences, certainly legal scrutiny, and very likely, more likely, civil consequences, right? So you've got to prepare for this criminal and the civil aftermath that's there. So you've got to know the laws well, because the second you go bang with a gun, Johnny Cochran's coming for you. And if he's not, Johnny Cochran Jr. or Sr. is coming for you, right? So after you know the laws well, and that takes some in-depthness, you can't get that in your standard concealed carry course. You've got to know your, your laws well. Next, you must, number two, you must be mechanically, if not, I tell you, expertly proficient with your defensive tool. Whether it's your gun, your pepper spray, your knife, whatever it is you decide to do, you need to be proficient with it. And I would tell you expert, because the second you got to pull a gun defensive life, it's going to be extremely dynamic, very quick. And with every round you send out of a gun, there's a lawyer attached to it. And there's a life change that happens because you pull the trigger. So you must be so good with it, you can get it done the appropriate amount of time, but also not spray and pray, right? 18 to 23% accuracy in a gunfight is a bad idea for a lot of reasons, right? So how do you use this gun well? How can you be mechanically proficient? That's a perishable skill, so you got to update that on occasion. So back to it. One, know your laws of your jurisdiction well. Two, be mechanically, if not expertly proficient. Three, the last thing you need to do, and I tell you, it's just as important as the first two. You must be prepared for the massive emotional, mental, psychological, physical, financial, societal, religious, you name it, aftermath that is coming. The second you go bang with a gun, your life will change. It will change. It absolutely will change. It's the reason why when cops get in shootings, within three to five years, they're outside of law enforcement because it changed their life, right? It will change your life too. You, If you've been married, I don't know, let's say Drew or let's say Thomas, right? Thomas says he's been married. So let's say 
So let's say he's been married for 50 years and that girl supposedly loves him. The second he goes bang with a gun and it changes his life within about two to three years, there's a high likelihood, even after 50 years of love and families, they are no longer going to be together. Why? Because it changes him and affects him so much that that girl, because she's smart, goes, I didn't sign up for this guy. I signed up for the other guy and this guy is no longer there. Therefore, I'm going to go find me a new one. Right. And that happens. We destroy our marriages simply because we defended our lives. So you must prepare for that massive aftermath that's coming, because if you don't, you don't get to live the life you deserve to live. You don't get to be the person that people need you to be. And now we drown our sorrows in a bottle, all the things we talked about. So going back to it, there's three things you must do. Know your laws. Well, mechanically build the skills of your defensive tools. Three, prepare for the aftermath. So the Defender series and everything Defenders is about is far more than the gun. We're here to build defenders. So if I can build you in all of those areas, and those that's a tiny synapsis or capsule of what we're doing. Now we build true defenders. And that's the idea behind everything we do at Defenders. No, that sounds awesome. And that's one reason I wanted to talk with you and bring you on the pod, because I've appreciated the practical and, I guess, holistic approach that you guys take at Defenders when it comes to firearms training, because that's something not a lot of people go into. It's, you know... I guess the aftermath and the consequences of having to defend yourself. So I appreciate and, and, and take Thomas sitting right here, right? Guys and girls, you got Thomas here. You're sitting in the presence of a hero. Understand he signed up for this stuff, right? But Joe Jane civilian didn't sign up to get attacked that day or to get raped or to get stabbed or somebody to try to shoot them. So the heroes out there, it's hard enough for the heroes, right? The Thomases who signed up for this. It's hard on the psychology, on the everything. But now imagine you're Joe Jane civilian, right? You dig ditches, you, you work in a hair salon, you, 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 you do accounting, you do something, right? And suddenly the most horrific thing in the world happens to you. And if you're not prepared for that, even if you dominate the gunfight, you just get lucky, you win. And that happens. Imagine what it can do to you in so many of their areas. So if it can affect cops in a severe way, and it's usually not the gunfight itself, it's all the other stuff. Imagine what it can do to the person who's not prepared here. So if we can build the bang skills, but build these skills too, wow, we can save a lot more marriages. We can save a lot more people. We can bring far more joy to their grandkids, to them, to everybody else, because we built the overall person, right? And not everybody can be a Thomas. So therefore, take your time to build yourself. So if your bad day ever does come, at least you survive with the best possible chances for your long-term benefit, not just the fight itself. Mm, that's a good point. I'm good glad point. you added that. And he's totally right, Tom, but there's no one like you. <laughs> so uh, real quick, I want to do a rapid fire round of questions for both of you guys. All right. And, you know, I want this to be off of instinct. You know, first thing that comes to your head, we're going to book through these. All right. So question one, Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse? Mickey Mouse. I didn't grow up in this country. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Question two, cold weather versus hot weather. Cold weather. Neither. Question three, Pepsi or Coke? Coke. Oh, people drink that crap? <laughs> <laughs> Coke. Yeah, absolutely Coke. <laughs> uh, question four, first firearm. Glock. Oh, okay. So I'm embarrassed to admit, dumb kid. Right back from Africa, didn't know anything about it. I went out and bought a $189 Jennings. 
Oh, wait, oh. You, you asked what was our first firearm? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you I misunderstood the question. My my very first firearm was a, a Mosin Nagant, a Russian Ooh. bolt action rifle. That's a unique first firearm. That's cool. They my that, my dad got them for like $110 a pop yeah. and got all my siblings one and I was dumb and sold it. So, okay, Glenn, I see oh. you, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, if you only had to choose or only got to choose one firearm for the rest of your life, what firearm would you choose? He's, uh, Adam's holding up a HK hat. I would say the uh, I would say the AR-15. Okay, cool. <sighs> yeah, I'd go HK if I could only choose one. Man, lugging around an AR all the time gets old. But yeah, probably that. If not, VP9, HK VP9 all day, every day. Love it. Love it. All right. So outside of firearms, what is your favorite hobby? Video games. <laughs> I do. I'd say working out and smacking around the wife, having fun, <laughs> <laughs> picking on the poor girl because she's tough, man. She's tough. Oh, um, favorite movie? Does a trilogy count? I'll take it. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Ooh, ooh, that's a good choice. Ooh. Probably if we're allowed to do a series, probably Band of Brothers. Ooh, both of those are really good. Favorite meal? Steak, baby, steak. I'm a I'm a fan of anything my wife makes. <laughs> Gun to my head. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'd say anything she makes is my favorite meal. That's a solid answer, brother-in-law. She introduced me to the southern southern way of cooking, and I love it. So, Ooh. Mm. oh, dude, yeah. you lucked out. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, fried chicken all day. Yeah, she does. A, it's she, nice. She does a pretty good fried chicken, though. <laughs> um, and uh, last question. So, Thomas, you are probably familiar with this. Adam, I'm not <laughs> sure if you're familiar. One thing we like to do on the podcast is we have a segment called Tales from the Range. And basically, they are funny or cautionary stories that I've cultivated from internet threads back in 2005. Uh, you know, people having like these experiences out on the range or in gun stores or out hunting, anything like that. Typically, we try to keep it funny, but you know, oftentimes that line gets blurred between funny and terrifying. Do either of y'all have a tale from the range that you'd like to share? Something funny, like yeah, yeah, and you can't you... use me as an example. <laughs> oh no, yeah. you're you're fair game. <laughs> I, I've aired all my stuff out on this podcast, sir. Whatever. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna be that guy, but it seems like I've had nothing but pleasant experiences on the range. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll pray for your uh, for that to continue. Okay, I'll give you one. Okay, so I just turn defenders into full time right so I'm, a, I'm i'm still kind of a newbie to teaching civilians i hadn't done that much and uh, i got this big long line of students this is in colorado and i don't know 16 or 18 students that day or for that whole week and a whole defender series and one's a doctor right you got like two different medical degrees and she's on the line shooting bang 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 first day you know we talked about safety this and that but it's summertime and of course I did the wrong thing because bang, bang, bang. I look over at her cause she was doing fine. I look over at her. She's down the line and fingers on the trigger. 
and something must have bit her on the side of the head. She's got finger on the trigger, takes the muzzle, goes, starts itching, itching the side of her head, finger on the trigger of her loaded handgun. Of course, I did the wrong thing, right? She's six, eight people, five people away from me or whatever. And I go, and I jumped, right? I screamed like a little girl and I jumped, which should have and could have caused a boom, sympathetic reflex with her startling because of my little high-pitched little girl scream when I jumped. Well, she didn't. I grabbed her hand, right, quickly, moved it away from her head, and carefully pulled her finger off the trigger. And then we had to come to Jesus moment, talk about it, right? And thank God that woman, because I screamed like a little girl, didn't blow her own head off. A doctor, a medical doctor, you should know better, right? So I did learn one thing that day. When you see somebody do something dumb on the range, don't freak out. Don't make noise. Carefully go quickly, carefully remove it instead of, ah! scaring people (laughs) (laughs) that's some solid advice though um because i know you know i know a lot of people that would react like that i'm glad that everything was okay but oh my goodness Uh, (laughs) i I just just thought of thought of my story first time going to the range it was an outdoor range i was with my dad and my brother one of my brothers first gun i ever shot was a lee enfield uh british lee enfield uh from world war ii Awesome, awesome gun. Well, we get there, and my dad, I, somehow I missed this. My dad didn't bring any hearing protection. He goes to the person in the lane next to us and asks him for a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And I was like, did I hear that? My dad doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He doesn't do any of that. Did I hear that right? My dad asked for a cigarette. He, he asked twice. The guy moved his thing, gave him a cigarette, and I'm like, what is he doing? My dad doesn't smoke. He starts unwrapping the filter of the cigarette and puts the filters in his ears <laughs> as hearing protection. And that was probably the dumbest thing I have, the dumbest thing I've seen. Cause that's just not, that's not going to work. Um, it's, it's just not. So from then on, he, he always had hearing protection with him, but yeah yeah when, when in doubt you can use a cigarette butt i guess i, I don't know are uh, you absolutely sure that man is not from north carolina because that sounds like something that happened in our part of the woods no he's a <laughs> he, he's a quote quote unquote dang yankee <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, those were awesome guys thank you both so much for hopping onto the show it's been an absolute pleasure we've uh got into like some serious heavy stuff it's been fun so i just want to thank you both guys if you want to keep track of adam and everything he's doing with defenders usa of course you can follow them on facebook instagram uh they have a rumble and you guys also have a youtube that has grown pretty massively in the last year i forgot what you said your subscriber count is right now uh it's just under nine thousand. we only had like six or eight hundred probably four or five months ago, I finally decided to stop trying to avoid all that stuff and actually try to spend time in it. And I got some incredible team members that took all my dumb stuff and edited it to where it made it pretty good. So it's catching, it's catching fire. If you guys want to subscribe to our Defenders YouTube channel or a Rumble channel, we'd love to have you. Uh, come to our Facebook or Instagram. I don't know much about Instagram, but I'm trying to figure it out. But we'd love to have you. I'd love to see you in courses. Please come. We do a lot of good stuff. And, and really, we just want to build as, uh, as many defenders and survivors as possible. For sure, for sure. And definitely go subscribe to that. Um, 
I can say, because I checked out their YouTube before you know, doing this interview, it's a really, really solid YouTube channel. Got some good advice on there. So definitely check that out. Your website is www.defenders-usa.com. Yeah, you have to have the dash, defenders-usa.com. It's a brand new website. It just came out this week because our old one was a dinosaur and we finally killed it last week. So this one's not completely perfect yet. There's a lot coming to it. But we're even going to have an option on there for if you come to my classes in Arizona, you come to our fundamentals, we're actually going to set it up to where you can name your own price, right? I just want to reach as many people as I can. I don't want the price to be the gate, you know, the, the, the thing that keeps them out. So we're going to let them name their own price. Just come see with the quality. Come see what you're going to learn. And it'll probably move you into more things later. But yeah, so come see us. We'd love to have you. Well, you guys heard it here. Go check that out. Uh, Adam. Thanks so much for hopping on chat, man. Thanks for reaching out and um, definitely wish you guys at Defenders continued success. Thank um, you so much. Thank you. And Thomas, Mongoose, I'll see you in a couple of weeks, buddy. All right, bro. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys Tom, so much. Thomas, a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, be safe out meet. there. Truly a pleasure to meet you. Drew, thank you for this. It's it's good to be a part of see what you're doing. It was absolute pleasure on my end, guys. All right. And so that has been the gun rack. All you gun rack mafia out there, have fun, stay safe, and we will see you at the range. Sonoran Desert Institute is an online school accredited by the DEAC. It is headquartered at 1555 West University Drive in Tempe, Arizona. For more information about how you can craft your firearms future, visit sdi.edu.